This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 18, Episode 37. This is Writing Excuses. Deep Dive, Mandatory Failure. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dong Lan. I'm Aaron. And I'm Howard. And we have reached that point in this uh, this eight-episode miniseries where we're actually doing the deep dive part and, uh, and diving into the books. Uh, Mandatory Failure is the 18th Schlock Mercenary story uh, and is book one of what I structured as a sort of a three-book finale to, uh, to the 20-book mega arc. Um, and so that's really the way I, th- I think of it, or the way I, I thought of it. Um, yes, it's the 18th book in a thing, but it is the first book in a trilogy that will end in a big way. Um, and the, the fellow cast members here have uh, just read it and I'm sure have bazillions of questions for me and I'm anxious to not be able to answer them. <laughs> <laughs> I can start. Uh, the question that I have actually comes from what you just said, which is knowing that this you meant this to be its own sort of self-contained thing within the larger, how did you decide where to start, you know, to make it a satisfying beginning for the trilogy? Um, I gave it a prologue with an explosion and the explosion in the prologue was an explosion. Uh, it was, it's enemy action and it is enemy action that continues throughout the trilogy. But in this case, it sets off a very specific local series of events that this book focuses on. And so, uh, uh, the, the, the fact that the, the enemy action, we have non-baryonic entities, the Panuri, uh, in the Andromeda galaxy, and, oh no, they have actually developed a weapon that lets them fire plasma through hyperspace and destroy targets kind of at will, and there's nothing we can do about it. And... That drives <laughs> that drives the next three books. You know that is they they have a plan and uh, and that drives the next three books. But for this book, the first thing that they hit creates a disaster, creates a refugee crisis, and our heroes, uh, the mercenaries, get dragged in to. And it's not very mercenary ish. They they get dragged in to help the refugees. They were voluntold. I mean, really, <laughs> they were voluntold. Yeah, well, they were voluntold, and the way it was fun to it was fun to create it that way. You know, one of the one of the mercenaries is related to uh, someone who's there uh, on the scene, and because of the weird and very very racist laws in place uh, in that system, um, they couldn't hire outside help unless they were related to somebody who lived there. And so she makes a call to her sister and her sister 
talked to the CEO and off we go as mercenaries that nobody wants to have. Uh, it, it's such an interesting, almost counterintuitive plot decision that you made because you know that you're setting up this big galaxy event. And where you start is an entire volume that's really focused on a logistics problem in a specific area of how do we deal with all of these corpses, I guess. They're kind of corpses, you know? Um, And so much of that initial section is taken up with the mechanical logistics. How do we harvest them? How do we bring them back? How do we feed them? And then also the political problem of how do we make this, you know, how do we not start three wars or whatever it is by doing this thing? And, you know, you know you want to get to point C. What made you decide to spend so much time in this very narrow slice? It's not a critique. I think it works beautifully. But It was a lesson that I learned early on, which is uh, big problems don't matter until you see the effects in small places. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. You know, famine? Yes, that's a disaster. Me being hungry is an effing catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And and so that's, you know, I wanted to drill as far down as I could, um, you know, having having refugees begin waking up before we're ready for them and wonder where their family members are. That is extremely poignant, extremely relevant to millions of people on the planet Earth right now. It was difficult for me to write because it was... Uh, it was so raw. Um, but by doing it that way, when I blow up more and more things later on, uh, you can you can extrapolate. You know, mm-hmm. people have already felt it in the small space, and now they can project it on the big screen and mm-hmm. and I make you feel even worse. And as an author, that's kind of how we think. What can I do to make you feel worse than you feel right now? Yeah, you do a good job of that. Thank you. Yeah. And and I like that, like, one of the things that I, I, I want to just draw attention to is that, you know, Dong Wan mentioned a, a number of different things that you're doing in, with that, but you're also doing, like, you've got these character arcs that are also happening for, for multiple different characters. So you set up this thing with Perry where where she is pretending to be in charge and and is, like, this... this trying to figure out the balance of where where power is you know what what is too much what is you know what is comfortable and and that's again reflecting like this larger power struggle and, mm-hmm. that's going on well and it's one of the themes that one one of the quiet themes um uh which we're actually going to try and reflect in the cover art uh these books aren't in print yet um book 17 features captain tagon on the front cover. Front and center, there really aren't any other characters there. Books 18, 19, and 20 will feature other characters in the center positions, and Captain Tagon's picture gets smaller with each volume because part of what is happening here, and maybe this is the parent in me, is that his company is, these people are growing up. These people are stepping up. And having a corporal needs to take charge and actually boss people around as if she is a a flag officer. Um, that's kind of huge. 
Well, uh, it really effectively set up the narrative rhyming or the thematic rhyming we're going to see mm-hmm. over the next three volumes of who gets to have power, who should have power, and who takes power, yeah. right? Yeah. And over and over again, we see entities, people taking control who shouldn't, people trying to resist that, people getting control when they deserve it. I don't know. There's these. You keep asking this question from all these different angles in each of these different scenarios. And what I love about this disaster and the logistics is, A, it, it sets up sort of your moral stakes in a certain way of like, this is how people should behave is trying to care for each other in this time of crisis, um, which then when things go off the rails in the future, it gives us that grounding, but also really sets up this understanding of um, thinking about power, thinking about authority in these ways, because we get to see the characters think about it in a very explicit on-page way. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the uh, the other things along those lines that I also thought was really lovely in the first book is um, is is how that that question of power dynamics is playing out not just in the hierarchical nature of the ship but also in the marriage the Foxworthy mm-hmm. like the the scene where he realizes that he has where he's trying to apologize to his wife for you know casting a shadow and then he's like no wait that's wrong because that's still centering me yeah it's (laughs) such a bad apology so bad and um but it's it's also the kind of thing that you you encounter in real in real life and and again it's that that becoming aware that you have power yeah that that you have been exercising in ways that that you really should not have Mm -hmm. yeah when we come back from the break i want to talk about why that apology was so important and why that was one of the most difficult scenes I've ever written. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I am so excited to talk about Homegoing by Yagyasi, which is one of those novels that I think lots of people were talking about, and I came to it late, and my main question was, why did I not read this sooner? Uh, So it's a book, it's a historical fiction novel that follows the descendants of one woman who has two children, one of whom marries the governor in uh, Ghana, in present-day Ghana, and basically helps to oversee a slave castle, and the other one who is one of the slaves sent over to America. And it basically continues to track their family. So each chapter you go one generation down as you see what happens to the half of the family that remained in Africa and the half of the family that went through slavery all the way down to the present day. I'll warn you, it's a bit brutal at times. It does not shrink away from its subject matter, but it's beautifully written. And each individual descendant story is just this wonderful sort of short story-like experience that really puts you in the mindset of the character as she tells this amazing historical fiction tale. So again, that's Homegoing by Yagyasi. So I'm going to go ahead and confess full, uh, uh, full confession here. Um, when Kevin apologizes to Elf, uh, I wrote and rewrote and rewrote that, and I must have broken down into tears half a dozen times while doing it. 
because I kept trying to tap into that relationship and into the experience of someone who knows he has uh, unjustly but accidentally exercised power over someone else, is preventing them from becoming what they could be, and wants to fix it, but the very act of trying to fix it is itself an exercise of power. And wading through that, it was fun to write in that, you know, Don Juan, you said, you know, worst apology <laughs> ever, clumsiest apology ever. Yeah. But the whole time I was writing it, I could tell that for Elf, it was the most beautiful thing yeah. she'd ever received because it was so genuine. Well, that's As the her, wonderful end to the scene, the yeah. tag of the scene of her tearing up. And it just shows how much it landed, even though we as the reader have that, you know, the, the comedy in the scene yeah. is him trying to explain this thing that is so, he keeps like apologizing for the thing he just said in the scene, yeah. right? It's And that's, that is a comedic tool, the yeah. cascading failure, <laughs> the, yeah. the cascading failure where every, it, it's, the mandatory failure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love that. I love that tool. But here's the thing. When I was writing it, I knew that part of what I was creating was a character moment mm -hmm. that made this Kevin precious. And I was about to kill him. Yeah. And he would never come back. Yeah. And Elf would forever have this memory of something her husband had done for her. And even if we are able to restore her husband from a backup, that backup doesn't include this data. And as she says later in the later in the story, you know, Schlock says, doctor can bring him back. And she says, I want the one who apologized. It's yeah. a heartbreaking moment. Oh. Yeah, it's so Yeah. It's like, and I had been waiting, no lie, I had been waiting five books for the opportunity to put paid on uh, on that this promise that, hey, just because I've introduced a form of immortality doesn't mean death is cheap. Yeah. Doesn't mean there's no cost to it. Um, I think it was book 13 where Schlock dies and they try and bring him back from bits they can find and end up having to restore him from backup. And uh, we actually had a conversation in a, a writing excuses retreat. Um, uh, and I remember, I remember the cast staring at me kind of wide-eyed, like, do you know what you've done? And my <laughs> response then was, I think I know what I've done. I, you're making it sound worse than I thought it really was. Maybe I should pay more attention. <laughs> um, and yeah, it, it took me five books to find the point where I could really turn the screws on the poor reader. I was thinking about what you just said about writing the apology itself and, you know, how it how it made you feel. And I often hear people talk about, you know, I I was crying while, you know, I know I wrote this and it was working because I was crying while I was writing it. Never happens to me because I'm cold inside. But, um, <laughs> but chaotic I'm wondering, dead inside. <laughs> chaotic dead inside. But I'm wondering, how do you know in that situation, like if what you are writing is emotionally landing for you? versus emotionally landing for the reader? Because I think you you got in the place you needed to in the end, but like, how do you separate the you who's experiencing it from the you who's trying to craft it? I have a cheat that is not available to anyone else. And I'd been using it for a decade by the time I got to got there. 
uh, I would write the scripts and then I would hand them to Sandra and I would watch Sandra read. I could see, I mean, I learned, I mean, I already knew, you know, a lot of the body language and the things, you know, micro expressions and whatever else. We've been married now, uh, as of this recording session, we are coming up on 30 years of marriage. This is someone I'm very, very close to. And I would watch her read and I watched her read this scene and she teared up and she giggled and she teared up and she giggled. And then, and then she handed it back to me and says, I want pictures. (laughs) And I knew, okay, this one's right. This one is right. I could not have created the schlock mercenary that, that I did without, without Sandra as the pre-alpha feedback loop because many times I would hand her a script and she'd look at it and she'd say, okay, yeah, no, I think with a picture and I, and I would snatch scroll away, stop, just stop talking. I can tell it's wrong because you have confusion and there should be no confusion at this point. The words should be enough. And I'd storm off to my office and I'd make it better. And then I'd bring it back and she'd look and I'd say, oh yeah, okay, yes, now I, so... I will say you say this is not available to other people, but it is maybe not in the exact form. Like it's, Sandra is a, not available. A third-year <laughs> marriage isn't you don't available have my to Sandra, no. But people, you can't have a beta reader. You can't have a crit partner. You can't have a collaborator in some ways. And I, yeah. I think having those people in your life that you can rely on to be early readers or even people just to bounce ideas off of. Uh, that I mean, though there that is available to people in certain ways. Yeah, I've heard it called yeah. an ideal reader, which is that you think mm. about the person that you want yeah. that you are writing for um and uh and and so like i i with the lady astronaut books in particular i'm writing for alessandra and and i'm looking for the moment where she's where i'm like oh she's going to hate this so much she's going to be so mad at me and i'm like yes yeah. that that's that's what i'm writing for is a lot of times is like will it provoke that and and it gives me a way to kind of ab test things in my own brain even before I commit them to the page, by thinking about how the person is likely to react to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I actually struggle when I'm submitting things to writing groups because um, when I get their responses, it's already been filtered. No, I wanted to watch your eyes while you read. Mm-hmm. I wanted to watch everything happen so that I knew and that. so that it's it's difficult to find. Yeah. You know. And that is too much feedback for some people, right? Yeah. For some people, yep. that is too intense of a process to feel that disappointment immediately in that way. Sometimes the filter is necessary. So know for yourself, you know, as you're figuring out who your quick partner is, who to work with, what writing groups to work with, you yeah. know, what level of feedback you need. But and coming they, back yeah. to Aaron's question, yes. um, I could not know that I got things right until I checked it with Sandra. And that one especially because it's a relationship between, you know, a man and a woman and he's famous and she's not and draw whatever parallels there you care to, I really needed to make sure that it worked. And once I had her approval, I knew that it did. It felt like a very personal, authentic moment. I felt a, a realness in that scene as I read it. And I think that comes through very well. Yeah, and I think a, a secondary question I think that was lurking beneath my question is authentic emotion versus manufactured emotion. Mm. Because I think sometimes um, 
Like, for example, uh, when I'm not being cold and dead inside, I might cry at like a Hallmark movie when the music swells. But I don't think that's that's just like I can feel the thing working on me. Yeah. You know what I mean, it doesn't feel like it comes from a genuine place. It comes from like all the things that are happening around it that are telling me to react in a specific way. Mm-hmm. Like when the music changes in a horror movie, it might not be scary, but the thing is telling you it's scary. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference between that and when the emotion is genuine and it's coming from a real place. And being able to tell the difference between you and when you're writing a more surface, and there's room for all levels, but mm-hmm. like when you're writing a more surface level emotion and when you're really getting to the heart of things, I think can be really difficult because they both feel emotional. So the, the, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and the reason I'm over here making faces that if we had a video feed, the, the viewers would be like, Ooh, what's going on there? Um, is because I think that when, that, that, uh, for a long time, I would say, oh, yes, you can feel it, you know, that that, that there's this idea. But uh, there are some people who, who don't have those reactions. Um, like when I'm writing with depression, um, I am strictly crafting my way through that. And I know from experience that the reader cannot tell. And uh, and then people with varying forms of autism often don't have the same kinds of reactions. So it's it's much like telling someone that you have to read your work aloud in order to know whether or not it flows, which is not a process that's going to work for a deaf writer. It's just another tool. In it's the another kit, tool. Right? It's, and it's a tool able, that can't. Yeah. I, I understand that what makes you're, sense. My question is actually less about the emotion and more about the craft, though. What yeah. I'm saying is, you can fool yourself into thinking you are writing something yeah. because you are putting all the emotions into it on a surface level. How do you ensure that the craft underneath of it? it is doing the emotional uh, okay. work uh. needed so that you may be making yourself cry on a surface level, but in fact, you're not getting to something else because mm-hmm. you are, it sounds right, if that makes right. sense, yeah. but it is not right. So and it's actually the tricky. opposite. I've okay, read so sorry. many things that sorry, are so raw in a way that it's, kind of, it's so intense of an emotional place that there's not enough craft on it to make it legible to me or connect yes, to me. Yes. Sometimes it just feels, I'm so inside someone else's experience that I'm like, I don't, know how to take this in and respond to it. So you always need that balance, right? You always need to yeah. know the score has to be right. The lighting has to be right. All these different things, right? Um, and, you know, I think what's so interesting about this conversation is we're seeing that it, it really is finding that balance point between something that feels very true to you, something that is rooted in however many years of craft you've applied to it, right? You know, you got to that moment, how we're not just by tapping into the emotion of it, but also, you've been drawing these characters oh, for years so and much, years and years. So much You know craft. how to hone a joke. You know how to do this. And you edited it and reworked it and all those things. So much craft. There was, uh, gosh, eight years ago. I don't know exactly. I was asked to narrate a uh, Christmas program. And the the way it had been written was very, we are going to tell the congregation how they should feel. And I objected to that on several levels. Uh, but the uppermost level was my writer brain was like, no, no, we can do this so much better. And so I asked them permission. I said, can I, can I rework some of this? I think I can trim, trim it a little bit and, and make it a little smoother. Do you mind? Okay, fine. And I took all of the tell statements out of it and reframed everything in ways that encouraged people to begin imagining feelings for themselves mm-hmm. without telling them to do that. And the response from the person who created it was, can I have this? Can this be the new edition? Of, can I just use, use I'm like, fine, 
It is my gift. It is my <laughs> gift to you. And it was all craft. It yep. was all craft. And it was very much, very much the toolbox of, I'm just going to remove all of the statements that tell you how you should feel and, and include characters feeling. Can we talk about the title real quick? Um, yes, this we idea can. of mandatory failure. And the reason it, it, you talking about this made me think of it was, you know, so much of learning craft, so much of learning how to do all these things is simply by doing it over and over mm-hmm. again, right? You have to learn by doing. Now, the reason I love this title and I love this idea is inherently you are going to be failing, especially at the early stages to do the thing that you're trying to do, to access that emotional state, to set, you know, set the stage properly to execute on all these different emotional levels. Failure is not just part of the process. It is a mandatory piece for success. Yes. Uh, or at least and that's, how I'm interpreting and what No, that, that's exactly right. The quote, and the quote grew out of a subversion of the NASA statement, failure is not an option, you know, which is a way of saying, this is too important to make any mistakes on. This is the piece we absolutely have to get right. But so many people misuse that and say failure is not an option all the time, and I subverted it. Failure is not an option. It's mandatory. The option is whether or not to let failure be the last thing you do. Exactly. And that is my favorite of the 70 maxims. It is maxim 70. It's where the, you know, it's where the series ends. And putting it here... Uh, nicely set up for me. I mean, it's sort of a theme in my own life. I'm going to have to fail at stuff over and over and over again in order to get it right. And these characters are going to have to fail at stuff over and over and over again before they get it right. In mm-hmm. this book, in the next book, and in the uh, the trilogy that wraps things up. Um, speaking of wrapping things up, we should homework. Our homework this week is uh, going to be a writing prompt for you. Um, so what we would like you to do is imagine a major disaster has just occurred and write a scene directly in the aftermath of this incident. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. This episode was made possible by our amazing Patreon supporters. To support this podcast and get exclusive access to Q&As, live streams, and bonus content, visit the link in our show notes or go to patreon.com slash writing excuses. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. 
Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 